Amen, amen. My name is Russ. I'm the halftime between the worship team coming back up here and doing more of that. Amen. <clears throat> that was awesome. Go and greet your neighbor now that you're seated. That way you can test your neck flexibility. <clears throat> Let them know you're glad they came to church. Thank you. If you, if you aren't hoarse at the end of worship, did you try? That's my question. <clears throat> I didn't hit the right notes, but I hit some of them. Man, a couple weeks away from football season, just a quick poll to see how godly the church is. How many of you are going to be pulling for Clemson this fall? And how many of you are going to be pulling for the other team? And this is why I continue to labor and preach the gospel, so that many on the dark side of sandstorms would understand that you don't have to live in a sandstorm anymore. You can live in a valley. There's a lily in the valley. See, I could preach that. I'm not, I'm not going to. I'm not going to. Well, hey, if it's your first time here, I, I hope you've been welcomed well. Uh, we're genuinely uh, humbled that you've taken some time to be with us. We've studied the book of Acts together in my first couple of years here. We've studied the 23rd Psalm, six verses over six weeks looking at the beautiful uh, reality of the Lord being our shepherd. We've studied John 14, where we learn that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, and John 15, where we learn that Jesus hangs out with messy people. One of my favorite things to do is to take one book or chapter of the Bible and just dive into it and do everything we can to preach what God would have for us to learn from it. Uh, and there's uh, this moment where I feel the Spirit lead us to go into a topical series looking at the Bible, and a lot of what it says about one subject. And those make me nervous for two reasons. One, it's a lot of hard work to be topically in balance with the Word of God. It's easy to take one scripture, make it say what I want it to say, and then preach a whole sermon around what I really want you to hear, which may be more beneficial to me than it is to you being more like Jesus. And a lot of topical preaching can, can err into that kind of thinking to where it's like, okay, how do I get them to do what I want them to do for us, for me, for our church's name to be more reputable in the community? And, and that's a sin of a pastor to do that, okay? Uh, the, the other side of it is a lot of the topics that people want to hear from the Word on, they're not actually wanting to be corrected by the Word, they're wanting to be affirmed by the Word. And, and the problem is, whenever you get into some of the topics that the Bible deals with, it actually deals with it rather resoundingly loud uh, in a clear message of what it thinks or what, or what we should do with it, to which many of us don't want to hear that topic. Uh, perhaps the most taboo topic that we could be talking about in church where people accuse the pastor of meddling instead of preaching is the topic of money. Because when you get into the topic of money, you find America's idol. You see, the Bible speaks repeatedly about the dangers of wealth taking over the heart and the affections of man. And one of the problems we have that we have to confess is that if you make more than a couple of dollars a day, you're more wealthy than 99% of the people in the world. You are a one percenter, just not within the country, within the world context. Basically what I'm trying to say is when it comes to monetary gain, 
Uh, most of you are going to have multiple choices for where you're going to eat after this. You've got multiple options for what you're going to open your cupboard to to choose to eat tonight at your house. Many of you are going to let food in your house go bad because you would rather go out to eat than eat it. Trust me, you have been blessed. And see, I'm already down the path with all of you looking at me weird, and I'm not even like, gotten into the text. And if you think what I'm saying is offensive right now, wait until you read the Bible, actually. Because do you really, really want to know what the Bible teaches about wealth and being kingdom citizens? Because for a lot of you, it doesn't align with your American dreams. And whenever you begin to preach on biblical constructs of money and how we're to steward it and what it's actually been given to us for, you usually find a church that checks out, tunes out, and doesn't come back. And so Christmas is coming and we need to make room. So for the next five weeks, <laughs> we're going to open up our Bibles and we're going to look at the taboo subject of money. Here's why. If you open your Bible, you'll understand that the Bible speaks to wealth and riches quite frequently. 16 out of 38 of Jesus' parables dealt with money and possessions and the need for us to understand the warnings of possessing them. If you continue to look in your Bible, you'll understand that nearly 25% of Jesus' words in the New Testament deal with biblical stewardship, managing your resources and the gifts God has given you well. Continue a little bit further. One out of ten verses in the gospel deal with money and possessions. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are more than 2,000 scriptures on tithing, money and possessions in the Bible, which is twice as many as faith and prayer combined. Why? Because money is an attractive God. And it is perhaps one of the easiest things to usurp your worship and devotion and dependency on God if you do not steward and check it. There's a reason what's in your wallet is called a master card. You master your money, or your money and your wealth will master you. And for a lot of us, there is a sobering conversation that needs to be had about the way the Bible views the things that we possess and the way that we steward the things that we possess if we want to live a life that makes kingdom impact and honors God with our wealth. As we jump into this study on this subject, I believe that we have to acknowledge something about us as humans. And here's the truth. We are more prone to justify an idol rather than to repent of one. And so I just want you to write that down. And every time you get mad and I'm reading the Bible, because you can get mad whenever I'm giving you my commentary. That's an opinion. You can be mad about it. You can be like, oh, that's off. Okay, that's fine. But if I'm reading the Bible to you and you find yourself not liking what is being read to you, then... You need to understand that that may be God's grace convicting you of an idol in your life, not a pastor meddling in your business about the way you live, but God convicting you of an idol in your life that he is graciously inviting you to repent of because idols can't speak, idols can't hear, idols can't deliver, idols can't answer prayers, and idols cannot be a foundation in the day of a great storm to be a life that's built on a good rock that will hold. I want you to have no idols in your life. That is my goal. I don't care if they're American. I don't care if they're culturally accepted. I don't want us to be a people that profess to have the one true living God in our lives. Yet, we live with a deepening dependency on idols and man-made things that usurp what's rightly God's to be given in worship and glory to him. So I'm going to tell you on the front end, because when you talk about money, everybody gets nervous. I'm going to tell you on the front end exactly what I'm going to talk about for the next five weeks. You ready? Here's an overview of the series so you can pick which weeks you don't want to come, and then we'll know which idols you have in your life. <laughs> Week two. 
we're going to talk about what the purpose of money is. What does the Bible teach us the purpose of wealth and money? Why do we get it? Why do we obtain it? So before you begin to think about, well, I just need this, I need this raise, I need more money, we need bigger, we need better. Before you think about that, you should consider why the money, why the Bible says you should go and pursue making, gaining money. Okay, so what is the purpose of money? Week two. Week three, is money multiplying or disappearing from your hands? This should be high attendance Sunday. Because for a lot of you, everything that comes in your hands disappears and you continue to rack up debt. So we're going to talk about that week three. Week four, how do, you dig out of the, uh, how do you dig out of the debt hole to live a generous life? I went and asked three people on staff, could I write debt hole on a screen in church and say it? Some of you are just in debt holes and you've got to get out of it. So we're going to talk about that. What does the Bible teach about debt? And how do you get out of debt? And this is not just Dave Ramsey. This is actually in the Bible. Dave didn't write the Bible. It's really cool. So don't think because you listened to one podcast or you took three parts of a Dave Ramsey class that you figured it out. You're, many of you are still rolling in debt, and you've not figured much out. So it's, this will be good for you. Week five, what is, and this is the warning. Week five, what does the Bible say about giving to the church and our neighbor? So I'm warning you. That's the week where I'm going to talk about giving or lack thereof to your local church and why you should or shouldn't give to your local church. And you're like, of course, many of you are like, he's a pastor, he's going to tell us we should give. But I'm, I'm telling you now that you, you, most people, they're like, I don't want the pastor to ever preach on money because he talks about giving to the church. Okay, I'm only going to do that one out of the five weeks. So the other four, you come, Thunder, and then the fifth one, you can lay out and watch it on podcast later so that you can be offended at home and call me bad names. Today, I want to talk to you about the warning label of riches and wealth. The warning label of riches and wealth. Uh, this sermon's entitled, Read the Warning Label Before Use. Read the warning label before use. How many of you have ever been in a store, Target, Walmart, and you've looked at the warning labels on different products and thought to yourself, what person <laughs> did that? to where they had to put that on the box. Because you understand, they don't just make up what they put on these boxes. They're, they're absurd, but they don't make up fake warning labels. Someone did whatever's on that box, and they thought, this is the way that you're supposed to use it. And all of us read that going, they're dead. <laughs> so so ju just for fun, to break up the conversation before we jump into the uh, four warnings the Bible gives us about riches and wealth before we use them. Uh, I, I want to give you the top five, they dead, your warned warning labels. I'm pretty sure that the people that achieved getting this on the box died in what they were doing. So the top five, they dead, your warned warning labels. Number one, uh, this has really happened in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Recycled flush water is unsafe for drinking. On a toilet at a public sports facility in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Anybody from Michigan <laughs> want to speak up about this kind of behavior? I mean, is this normal where you come from? It looked clear. Number two, this product not intended for use as a dental drill on an electric rotary toolbox. Where's Woodruff? <laughs> Come on. Moonville, Piedmont, Pelzer, where you at? Sugar tit, check in, check in. This was for you. Someone in your family probably did this, and you know who it is. I got a toothache, and that weird uncle spoke up. I'll take care of that. Come here. Come here. Drink this. Sorry. Number three, they dead, you're warned. Warnings. 
may be harmful if swallowed on a shipment of hammers. <laughs> Thought they were gummies. What do you do with that? Anyway, number four, caution, remove infant before folding for storage. I thought it, you just folded them up and put them in the car and they were safe. It's like a little bubble. I don't know why they were crying so much. Aren't babies bendable? It's concerning. Number five. Wearing of this garment does not enable you to fly on a child-sized Superman <laughs> costume. Mama, I got on the roof and I didn't fly. What's wrong? Uh, the truth is, the Bible lists several warnings about the misprioritization or misusing money. And for many of us, we would do well to look and take heed of these warnings for money before you get any more money to get yourself into more problems. As the prophet Mace said, mo money... Mo problems. And see, a lot of you from the 90s know exactly what I'm talking about. For those of you that do not, Mace is a born-again believer, so it's not like I'm quoting Tupac. That was last week. Um, uh, the truth is, you, what happens when you do not know how to handle money is more money doesn't actually help you out. It's amazing to me that when I was broke in college and didn't know how to handle money, I didn't have a lot of major bills to deal with. But whenever I didn't know how to handle money and I got that first job and they gave me credit cards... And they gave me the opportunity to misuse more. I got into more debt than I'd ever been in in my life. In fact, at one point in time in my marriage, when my wife and I were making the most we'd ever made in our lives, we had the most credit card debt we'd ever had. More money didn't lead to more freedom. More money wasn't leading to more financial uh, success. More, more money was actually leading us to more problems because we weren't understanding God's created purpose for resource well. So there's four warnings that I see in Scripture that I want to share with you this morning before you get, get more money, make more money, or make a decision that costs you more time to get more money that will hopefully warn and prepare you about the misuse of it. Number one, the first warning is this. Money will not give you lasting satisfaction. For many of you, you are dissatisfied with where you're at in life. You're dissatisfied with what you can buy, with where you live, with the car that you drive. You're, you're dissatisfied with the fact that you've got to eat in more than you eat out. You're dissatisfied that you're in debt. And in your mind, what you need is to hit that lottery ticket. For a lot of you, instead of investing money into a savings account and getting an emergency fund, you bought lottery tickets last week to win a billion with a 1 in 356 million chance that you would hit one. So instead of stewarding money, they got too personal too quick. Everyone got really quiet, you see? Instead of stewarding money well, what, what for a lot of us do is we complain about not having enough money to be generous. We complain about not having enough money to be satisfied. And we think that if we made more money, then we would be satisfied with what we had. The truth is, there was a time in your life where you weren't making what you're making today. And you thought, if I made what I'm making today, I would be what? Happy. And then you got it, and you're not happy. You got it, and you're still dissatisfied. And the Bible warns about this in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 10. The guy that wrote this had more money than any of us. It was King Solomon, and it says this. Those who love money will never have enough. Not my words, that's the Bible's word. When you love money, when you make it your goal, when you want to be a rapper in a video doing this, what ends up happening with the love of money is no matter how much you stack, no matter how much you make, you never will have enough. And this, look at the warning. 
How meaningless to think that wealth brings happiness. How meaningless to think that you could get so much of it that you could get to a point where you would be happy. See, for a lot of you, you think that you will be happy when you make more money. You'll be happy if you make more money. And you put your hopes and joy and happiness tied into a raise that is in the future that you've already outspent that earning category with your current spending habits. So instead of getting into a budget that actually spends less than you actually make now so that you can actually get out of debt, so that you can actually get to a place where you're not like every single time a car a tire blows, you're having to like take out another loan or pull out your 401k to like put new tires on the car because you didn't foresee that emergency coming. Really around here, like on our roads, <laughs> South, South Carolina does two things really poorly. We put 400 houses in on a two-lane road and we don't even maintain the two-lane road that we already have. So let, let's, just, let's just acknowledge the fact that if you live in South Carolina, you should probably put $5, $10 away per month into a tire going to get eaten by a pothole in this town at some point in time. We should expect that and not be surprised by it. That's what I'm trying to get at. Do you, does that make sense? So, so here, here's where I'm at. For a lot of you, you think, when we get there, we'll be happy. When we get there, we'll be satisfied. And the Bible's saying, that's a lie. I mean, like, no, it's not. No, it's not. If I made more, I would be there. If I made, and you, you make excuses. And the Bible, it's not me. It's the Bible. When your joy and happiness are built in making money, you will never have enough and you will never find it. It will always be a moving target. Always be a moving target. The first warning that I want you to understand about money before you use it is that money will not give you a lasting satisfaction. Number two, the second warning, the love of money will lead to sorrow. The love of money will lead to sorrow. A lot of people err on the side when they preach and teach about the Bible's perspective of money. They uh, will preach that basically, you know, money's the root of all evil and that if you're rich, it's because you've done something wrong to get it. And it's not true. What's true is the love of money leads to all sorts of evil. That's 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. It says it very clearly. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people... Craving money, money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many what? What's the text saying? When you love money, when this becomes what your affection is for, what, what you wake up and grind for, what, what am I getting up for today? I'm getting up to get another paycheck. I'm getting up to make more money. I'm getting up so that I can get ahead of whatever it is or who, what, anything else I'm competing with with my stuff. When that becomes your driving force in life, the root of it is all kinds of evil. Why? Why would the love of money lead to all kinds of evil? Think about this. Use your brain. Where else in the Bible do we talk, are we told to love something? We're told to love one another. That's tied into something called the great commandment. In the great commandment, it says that we are to love the Lord our God with what? Oh, a lot of watermelon. The heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? So, so, so think about it this way. When you love money, what do you think about? Money. When you love money, what do you desire? What do you wake up and go for? What, what, do, you, what do you dream when you were a kid through the Sears catalog? None of y'all remember what a Sears catalog is, do you? So back in the day, we didn't have Amazon. You would mail in a check 
that would go to Sears and they would mail back. So, and, and then there were these things called CDs. You couldn't just listen to whatever music you wanted to. So there was this group called Columbia House. Anybody remember getting, how many of you got grounded for Columbia House CD purchases? Amen. Amen. I still got the Wallflower CD. Um, <laughs> you, you would sit there and you would, you would think about, you would desire, oh, I got to have that, that outfit, that thing. You, you would go into Belk's because we didn't have Abercrombie and Fitch when we were real small. And y'all, some of you are like, what's Abercrombie and Fitch? Well, back in the day, it was like really expensive and dumb. It's, it's basically like buying jeans with holes already in them. Like it's, uh, it doesn't make sense. Like, I earned my holes. You just had yours put in for you. This is meddling. Back to the preaching. My, my point, my point is, my point is, when you love something, it consumes you. And what the Bible is warning against is the idea that you could be consumed by the love of money to the point that you're no longer consumed by a love of God. And here's the real problem. When you're consumed by a love of money so that it no longer allows you to be consumed by a love of God, the byproduct of loving God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength is that you love your neighbor as yourself. And when you aren't consumed with loving God, the byproduct is that you begin to not be loving to your... Oh, no one's wanting to talk to me out loud today. When you don't love God, you end up not loving your neighbor, and then you use image bearers of God to get what you love, which is what? So it's all about a transaction and a deal and not about a relationship. How many of you have hated a boss because he was all about you being a money maker instead of being a human being? Yet how many of you, out of a love of money, have used other people just as a transaction, a busboy in a restaurant who no longer is an image bearer, they're just there, there to do a duty, a waiter or a waitress in a restaurant, which by the way, I think every single one of us at some point in time should have to spend a few weeks waiting on tables on a Sunday afternoon dealing with Christians in the upstate of South Carolina. I'm just letting that sit on you for a minute. Because for some of you, you need to marinate on the way that you treat other people because they're just there to complete a transaction, to make you happy instead of understanding, understanding that they are image bearers of God with a story and a need for redemption. You see, if your chief aim in life is to get rich, your end game in life, according to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, will be misery. If your end game in life is to get rich, your end game... If your chief aim in life is to get rich, your end game in life will be misery. You see, many of us will spend our life's energy trying to grow a bank account and all while missing out on actually living a life that counts before God. I believe that our chief purpose is to love God and to love people. And money can either be a means to worship and serve God as well as bless others or God and people become a means for you to make money. So you pray to God and you do what God requires. Why? Because you want your real God to be funded. Which is your lifestyle, your view, your bank account. I did my part, God, you do yours. Which means he's not really God at all. You see, when money becomes the love of your heart, the desire of your heart, it begins to quench your love for God, which in turn will change the way you treat your neighbor. And there are many a Christian 
who are a greedy Christian, which should be an oxymoron, who has replaced the love of God that's led them to a generous love of their neighbor with a love for things, a love for stuff, a love for retirement, a love for a status, a love for a way of living, a love for, for a new boat, a love for a larger and upgraded whatever. And as a result of it, we have dismissed the, the sacred daily call of loving and serving our God through serving and loving our neighbor for the sake of getting more money to serve ourselves. Again, I'll pause for you to do some self-reflection. Two warnings, and we're already meddling. Number one, money will not give you lasting satisfaction. Number two, the love of money will lead to Number three, y'all said that so, so joyfully. Thank you, pastor, for reading the scriptures and teaching us the truth. The love of money will lead to sorrow. When you wrapping this up? See, don't, don't get into the ought to's, you know. I'm, I'm not up here to tell you what you ought to do. I'm up here revealing the truth of what will deliver you from a life of bondage or a life that comes short of what God has called you to. Number three. Warning, you can't take your money with you and it will not help you when you're dead. Like we can throw it in your casket, but it's not going to help. God does not look at American dollars and go, oh, well, a few more Abes, a few less Georges, you can come in. Money does not help you on the day of judgment. You all are going to stand before God and give an account for your life. And on that day, either the blood of Jesus will give you the riches of heaven, or without the blood of Jesus, no matter how much money you've had on earth, you will not know any of the riches of heaven, which, by the way, just to remind you, the gates are made of stones that many of you are spending your entire life to buy a little bit of, and the streets are paved in gold, which many of you are killing others for. That's not the highlight of heaven. The highlights of the riches of earth pale in comparison to the highlights of the riches of heaven. 1 Timothy chapter 6, again, teaching on this subject in verse 7, says this, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take... Now, I want to let you in on this really cool word right here, nothing. Uh, in Hebrew and in Greek, it means nothing. If we go into the Latin roots, it means nothing. It doesn't matter how we divide it. It means nothing. So, so think about a life that's lived with the chief aim being gaining worldly things. What, what is that life and its end accounted for? Think about it. Think about how many of you are absentee parents because you need more money. They need more money. They need more stuff. And you've replaced yourself with a 70-hour work week so that you can give them a yes day once a year, so that you can take them to a, a place that doesn't agree with Christian values, so that you can spend all of the money that you've earned not being around them at the place. Like, like explain to me the, the logic behind living a life that sacrifices all of its time for place, for in relationships where you're irreplaceable and money doesn't fill the void, so that you can then put money in place and go, but it was fine because you had a better life than, you, than I had. I mean, let, let's be honest. Because we're, we're, we're not close enough to Christmas for me to get so offensive. 
What of those Christmas presents did your kids actually continue to play with by January 1st? How many of you even got out of the new year without them saying they were bored again? Yet you spent, either got yourself in debt or spent yourself uh, in work, like spent your time and your energy in work to get that stuff so that you could blow all of it on stuff that, that now they don't even want. And now you're given to goodwill for someone else to buy. And the problem's still there. The relationship between you and the child doesn't exist. Cue cats in the cradle. Right? I mean, think about this. this. This is what I want you to think about. We bring nothing in the world. We can take nothing out of it. It's not to say that we don't need to go and work. It's not to say that we don't need to earn. But, but there's got to be a point in time where you recognize this is greed and this is not about what's good for the family. This is about me getting my significance. This is about me getting my value. This is about me getting my worth out of what I make. So it's not for the benefit of my spouse, and it's not for the benefit of my children, and it's not for the benefit of the people that will come after me. This, it, this is beyond retirement. This is beyond us being comfortable. This is beyond us being responsible. This is straight greed. But m- most of us never arrive to that realization until it's too late. We bring nothing into the world, we take nothing out of it. Psalm 49, verses 16 and 17, just to make sure you know I'm not proof texting this. So don't be dismayed when the wicked grow rich and their homes become ever more splendid. For when they die, they take, there's the Hebrew. We went New Testament Greek, we went Old Testament Hebrew, bam. Nothing with them. Their wealth will not follow them into the grave, Proverbs 11.4. Look at what Proverbs 11.4 says. Wealth is worthless in the day of... Aren't you glad you came to church? Wealthless is worthless on the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. You see, money is temporary. The afterlife does not run on our world's currencies. You enter the world with nothing, you leave with nothing. One of my favorite quotes comes from a uh, person that worked with John D. Rockefeller. Many of you only know him from a Jay-Z song, but he was a very wealthy man back in the 60s. And um, like three people get my jokes, that's about it. But Rockefeller died, and the day after he died, they asked his assistant how much had he left behind. And his assistant responded with, all of it. Think about it. Like, I'm, I'm sure right now, Rockefeller Center in New York, I, I, oh, that's great. It's awesome. He's dead. He's gone. It doesn't make sense to make your life about the gain of money. Number three. Number four. Fourth warning. Wealth without godly vision will deceive you. If you don't have a godly vision for why you earn, for how you spend, for why you gain... What will end up happening is you will become deceived. And you'll become greedy even though you don't think you're greedy because no one's ever admitted to the sin of greed in my life. In my entire 19 plus years of being a pastor, I've never had someone into my office and someone come into my office and go, you know what? I need to repent of some sin. Okay, what, what sin do you need to repent of? The sin of greed. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. In fact, I've, I've told you all this before. Uh, Tim Keller, uh, who was my favorite preacher back in the day, he uh, uh, found that one instance in American church history where anyone was d- disciplined in a church for the sin of greed. It happened in the 1600s up in Massachusetts. Like one time in all of church history was someone looking at someone else and they thought they were greedy. And here's what they were doing. They were making $2 more in profit off of a sale than they were supposed to be making. I'll again pause for you to marinate on some of the choices you're making. My point is, the Bible warns that there's a deceitfulness that comes with wealth. Matthew chapter 13, verse 22 says this. 
Look at it with me. Matthew 13, 22. Matthew chapter 13, verse 22. It says, The seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life. And the lure of... All right, so we're in the parable of the sower. Seed goes in. We have uh, seed that comes up that's uh, of the Lord, seed that comes up that's not of the Lord. There's a seed that grows amongst the thorns. What does that represent? What does that represent? Well, it represents people that get worried about the worries of this life and the lure of... So what happens? No fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, mercy, self-control. No fruit gets produced. What are most of us trying to buy with a vacation? If we could just go to Fripp, baby, it'd be great. Without the kids. You know what we'd have? Peace. What are many single people trying to earn through their status, through finance? Love. What? I want you. I, I get. I, I get. My, the way my brain works, I take one text and I, I've, I attach ten others to it. But I, I think the spirit's in this because my ADD used to just be ADD. Okay, it was all '90s hip hop. That's all it was all the time. Now, now it's like scripture all the time. Like they're just connecting the dots. Well, if some people are like, "What's it like to live in your head?" I, have you ever seen the movie Beautiful Mind where he's doing the math problems? That's like that with Bible. That's what's happened to me since I found Jesus. Like not since I found since Jesus like grabbed me, found me. It's just like Bible. All the time up here. Think about it. There's no fruit produced. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, mercy, and self-control. For, for a lot of us, what happens is there's a deception that comes with wealth that begins to choke out us living a godly life, a life that counts before God, a life that matters for the kingdom and its purpose. And I, I want more for us as the people of God. You see, there is a trap to think that wealth is a security There's a trap that begins to believe that there's a hedge that wealth can build around you. You see, the trap is to think that wealth will equal hope. The trap is to think that good is made possible by wealth alone. One of my favorite authors, Andy Crouch, said this, Money allows us to get things done, often by means of other people, without the entanglements of friendship. See, we we were made for relationships, but when you're wealthy, you don't need people. You need servants. You don't need a friend, you need someone to just get a job done. They come and do what you want them to do, and then they leave. You don't have to have a conversation with them. You don't have to acknowledge their humanity. You don't have to engage with them. It's just they're there to trim the hedges, and then they leave and go home. But you've been called to more as a follower of God. You've been called to share the gospel everywhere you, you go. So how can you do that if people are just a transaction? I mean, how, how many people, because we're wealthy enough to bring them into our house to do a job, come and do that job with no conversation about the eternal, eternity of their souls and where they're headed? I get it. Oh, that's the weird Christian stuff. I don't care. That's normal Christian stuff, and y'all have called it weird. The only thing that's weird about it is that you just let people pass by in a transactional relationship and don't talk to them about what matters most in eternity. Think about this. When people become part of a transaction rather than a friend, we don't need people. They are of little to no value to us. We pay them so that, so that they do the job that we want them to do, and then they leave. A wrong view of wealth. 
will not enrich the community around you, but instead isolate you from the community around you. Think about Jesus in the story of the rich man with Lazarus at his gate. He built what? A hedge or a gate around him? Large gates. Large gates. (laughs) And in those large gates, what was behind it? Isolation. He was cut off from everybody else because everybody else was a threat to what? His true treasure, which was his riches. Consider this. How many of you have really big gates and you live in neighborhoods with really wealthy people yet you say they're all so cold I can't tell you how many times I've been in friends that have very nice houses behind very big gates and they complain about every neighbor that's in the neighborhood they're isolating they're not nice they're not friendly it's amazing to me how many times I've stood in multi-million dollar home neighborhoods while neighbors complained about how unfriendly the other neighbors were. My favorite one was one time, there was someone in my church in California complaining about how unfriendly a neighbor down the street was, and the neighbor down the street went to church with them. And I said, hey, they go to our church too. Come here, I'll introduce you. And they're like, no, 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 no. Be careful. Wealth can get you into a whole lot of predicaments. It can put you in a place where, yeah, you can buy what you want, eat where you want, Go where you want, but if you're not careful, it'll lead you to a life you don't want. What's the remedy? Well, let me give you a little bit of hope. This whole chapter that we've been kind of bouncing around in in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6 also highlights the remedy to this. Look at what it says. True godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. What should the aim be? What should we strive after? I want to be more like Jesus. That's worthy of your devotion. That's worthy of your affection. That's worthy of your time. That's worthy of your pursuits. To pursue in a way that allows you by the grace of God and the work of God to become more like Him. What's the, what's, what's the, what's the math problem here? When you have godliness as the main pursuit and you're content with the fact that in Christ Jesus you get Him, then everything else falls into place. When the, when the aim's to be more like Jesus, and you're content because Jesus has offered himself to you, meaning you didn't have to buy him or earn him, then there's a contentment that begins to rest in your soul. Look, look at what it goes on to say. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be... Uh-uh, I see. I read that this week and got convicted. Can I tell you why I got convicted? Because what is the Lord's Prayer? What's a main line in the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our... You know, most of us can't really pray that because we've hoarded more than a day's worth of bread. And it's not an emergency fund savings account. I'm not, I'm not downing you being fiscally responsible, but there is a look in the mirror moment that most of us need to have, myself included, that, that asks the hard question, is my devotion in life really depending on Jesus or honestly Have I built up enough walls and wealth and food storage supplies to where if I I go a few days without his daily bread, we'll still eat? I get it. Some of you are mad. Good riddance. I love you. But at the end of the day, I, I want godliness and contentment to rest in your soul because when godliness and contentment are at work in your soul, man, We get to do something that we've not even gotten to dive into yet, and that's become a generous people that have freely received. Therefore, we get to freely 
And I want that for you. I want it for you. Our prayer team is going to be here. If we can pray for you in any way, we'd love to do that. It's a tough sermon to repent in. Uh, but I've spent some of this week doing that. Lord, how, how do I need to look at my spending habits and think differently? Lord, how do I need to look at my savings goals and think differently? Where am I trusting more in the security of my financial planning more than in the security of you being my Lord and my leader and my God? And I'm just going to be honest. The older you are, the harder these sermons are. Because it's very easy to say, well, I was responsible and not negligent like a bunch of whatever. It does not discount the fact that we are called to live and steward wealth differently. And we are called to look at the corrective cause of Scripture and take them seriously. If we can pray with you, we'd love to do that. If you need to pray, you come forward as the Lord leads. In Jesus' name, let's stand, let's sing.